the channel. An audio broadcast all about everything. Avoid passing on unconfirmed information and rumors. Ladies and gentlemen, as a courtesy to our presenters, please turn off all electronic devices. And now... Hello and welcome to the third episode of Recreating, a special podcast series brought to you by ICAD designed to offer new perspectives to the creative industry. My name is Mike Mesber, ex-creative director of Ogilvy and Y&R. And I'm Pierce McGuire, ex-creative director of TBWA. Coming up shortly, Rossi McCauley meets Max Phillips of Signal. Milton Glaser Graphic Design, his first big book came out when I was in high school and it had a huge, huge effect on me. And I'll be catching up with Mark Shandley, ex-DDF H&B, and now with Widening Kennedy in London. It's bad enough all the big brands making those pieces with empty stadiums where they just point out what's going on. If they're going to be back-to-back in a commercial break, how are they going to stand out? But first, I'm joined by Bren Byrne, creative partner at McCann Dublin, to talk about his experiences working as a creative in Dublin today and setting up and running Offset, one of Dublin's most significant creative and cultural events. Bren, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. So tell me, what was the original thinking behind Offset? Well, I guess originally when we started it, I had been working with... uh, Richard Seabrook on a number of his events and enterprises, uh, namely Sweet Talk and uh, Candy. And the, the the genesis of Offset kind of came out of a number of years working together on that. Uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to do an event that had some scale to it, that we would be able to have a little bit more control and power to invite some uh, bigger international speakers uh, and to make an event that was more of uh, a draw for international visitors as well as uh, the people that would normally come to our events on a Thursday night, say, in Dublin. We wanted to create something that was a kind of a, a fulcrum, uh, uh, a point in the calendar uh, in the design community here in Ireland that would draw a bigger crowd and give us just a little bit more space and time to be inspired uh, by design and creativity. and. It was really about, at the time it was 2008, 2009 when we started and of course that was when the the last recession, I know it's funny now thinking about it, the last recession happened, but we just wanted to create an event that was about the positive effect and power that creativity and design can have. It is an amazing event and has been one of the highlights of of the creative calendar year, but it sounds like you're saying right from the beginning you had a vision for it to be international and really culturally significant? Well, I think the the significance of its cultural impact was an aspiration for sure, because every time we made a decision or tried to do something from a curation point of view, it was always with ourselves in mind first. You know, we were never trying to second guess what we think an audience might want. We definitely, it was a passion project, but one that we felt when we looked around, we felt that there was an appetite for uh, so yeah, we we definitely had a feeling from the start that what we wanted to do was to give a platform for the brilliant design that was happening here in Ireland or being practiced by Irish uh, creatives around the world. And uh, you know, there's not exactly a shortage of design events around the world, but we felt there was very few that were inviting Irish designers to speak, and we felt that the. Uh, we could address that by creating an event ourselves. And I think it was amazing that you, as you say, you did it without any kind of separation between Irish designers and international designers. Some some other shows, let's say, whatever you want to call them, um, festivals and events, sometimes sort of 
separate out the local from the international and even offer different awards and stuff like that. Not that I know Offset wasn't an awards show, but mm-hmm. I think the fact that, that the Irish creatives sat alongside the international creatives and there was no you know, segregation, for want of a better word, really made it amazing. When we when we're deciding on who speaks or who we invite to speak, we have a big we we always had a big long wish list, and we, there's still people on it from the start that we haven't got yet, but that's dwindling every year. Uh, but we you know we felt it was important that not only within the Irish international aspect, but that even within just the whole creatives that we were inviting, that we there wasn't necessarily a hierarchy either, you know, so that when, uh, for example we have someone who would be the, the last speaker on Friday or on Saturday or Sunday. We would choose someone that we felt would capture the mood and would send people off uh, into the night with the feeling we wanted them to have as opposed to this is the biggest name, therefore they must go on last because that's the traditional way that you create an event. So we we always kind of had a feeling for... Uh, the rhythm of the weekend and who would be the group, the best speaker to finish, you know, uh, on a Sunday, as opposed to who is the the biggest name. I think at the at the the core of what we try and do, uh, as anyone who's been at Offset will hopefully testify, is that uh, we try as much as possible to. Uh, we never set a team, for example, for for the event. Sometimes those teams can come out over the weekend naturally. But uh, or they capture kind of a zeitgeist with the speakers that we select. But we, what we try and do is we try and just pick people that we just think are great and we love their work, and we try and mix it up in terms of gender and generation and uh, discipline, and hopefully with the the spirit that. Uh, myself and Lisa who run offset uh, we try and in our communications with the speaker in the in the year or the months leading up to it we try and you know get to know them and then we meet them it's very social in terms of how uh, our first interaction with them and we try and create a kind of an atmosphere so that when people uh, are speaking uh, they are relaxed and they kind of maybe give a little bit more than what they would normally and hopefully that means then that the the audience members will 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 get that little bit extra themselves and feel connected maybe with the speaker. You're listening to Recreating, ICAD's podcast for creatives working in advertising, design and production. But why just listen when you can take part? Visit ICAD.ie for more information on ICAD membership, ICAD awards and our 2020 exhibition. You began, I think you said in 2008 was when you when you first conceived of it. So were there about 10 offsets, is that correct? There's been, I think, about 15 at this point. We did one in, uh, our first one is 2009. We skipped 2011 because we moved from autumn to springtime. Um, and then in 2014, we did one uh, in Limerick as part of their City of Culture. In 2015, we did one in London as well as Dublin. 2016, we did one in Sheffield as well as Dublin. So there's been a couple of years where we've done two in the year. So you were talking about Irish creatives living, if I can say that, alongside international creatives. And I'm wondering, do you think we have the talent here in Ireland and the expertise, I suppose, to compete with anyone in the world anywhere? In terms of talent, I think we have an abundance of it. You know, I mean, we've had no problem choosing great people to speak on our stages over the years. uh, from a range of disciplines, from animation to graphic design to architecture uh, and photography uh, and everything else in between. 
Um, one of the highlights for us is is uh, of doing offset is to being able to be in a position to invite some speakers, Irish designers, etc., who are living abroad to come home for offset. And I think you know when you talk about our place in the world or whether we can compete. Uh, for want of a better word, with the, the, the best of the, the rest of the world. I think when you look to every major city in the world where they have a vibrant design community, there is Irish people at the forefront of that and working in the best companies. Um, so when we, can, when, when, when we look at Irish design, we look at it from a global position in terms of uh, uh, not necessarily just people who are working here in, in Ireland. So uh, the short answer is yes. I think we have an abundance of talent. Um, and I think since we started, um, it's it's kind of mirrored the kind of outward looking nature of Irish design. You know, I think we've become much more global in our ambition. And I think uh, offset has reflected that it's probably we would like to hope that it has a little bit of influence over but it certainly reflected the ambition of the design community in terms of looking outwards yeah i do i do think offset was a big part of that transition from that kind of latent inferiority complex into a yeah. sense of hang on a minute we're as amazing as anyone else in the world and we can we can do it and i think Seeing it for real at Offset probably helped a, an enormous number of people to to kind of come to that to that way of uh, of thinking, and it brings me to another point, which is about our responsibility um, to the society we live and work in as creative people, and particularly in your case as a designer. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Do you feel you have a sense of responsibility? Was was Offset something to do with that? Yeah, I think there. You know, it's very hard to, to 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 pinpoint certain kind of you know rationales behind things because it always felt a little bit organic. You know, and we were kind of not necessarily making up as we kind of went along, but there were certain things that pushed us. My background was in illustration and fine art, and uh, my other partners in Offset at the time were designers and brand branding, and we all had shared interests in other areas like photography and street art and other elements of creativity, and. We just, I suppose, when we came together, we just had a shared passion for creating a platform to celebrate the work that was being done, you know, and that's what drove us, you know. It was a sense that this is amazing what's happening, and we, how can we be part of it? How can we uh, bring it to a wider audience? And how can we give people the kudos that they deserve? And uh, as part of that, you know, and we do, you know, getting back to your other point, when we, when anecdotally, when we talk to people about their, their, their feelings about Offset, uh, you know, we hear, particularly from younger people, students, we get a lot of this when we go, uh, we, do, we travel around all the different colleges talking to students about, the, uh, about Offset. Um, and we do hear from people who've gone overseas as part of their courses that when they go over there uh, and meet other design students, and they say they're from Dublin and they go, oh, that's what I've been to Offset. And they just feel not only a, a sense of pride that people know about Dublin because of something like Offset, but they immediately feel that they're getting some of the some of the benefit that suddenly they're being taken seriously as a designer because uh, Offset exists in Dublin. So therefore, the, the level of uh, what design, what the design community and industry here uh, uh, is has risen because of the reputation of our event and i think that's part of why we do it is to is to raise awareness for 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 the the, the great work that's done by irish people 
And it sounds like you've done more than raise awareness. You've 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 instilled a sense of pride in people. That's that's what comes across to me as you speak there. That you know people are really proud when someone says, "I've been to Offset. It was amazing. I've been to your city. It was amazing." You know um, that there's there's a real sense of pride that goes along with that. You know, we we when we meet other designers uh, at Offset, they come up to us and they say they don't come home for Christmas because they get. If they're living in New York, they can afford to come home once a year. So they come home for offset and they see their family around that. Like, and, you yeah. know, people refer to it as the designer's Christmas. And, you know, there's, we know it's, we know it's become uh, uh, an event that people mark in their calendar uh, because of the, not just the inspiration and the platform it gives for Irish design, but the social aspect of it. You know, yeah. we, we spend a lot of time as designers and creatives on our own or in, in the kind of, uh, with our work heads on. And it's great to have an opportunity uh, we feel uh, without the kind of maybe the, the the competition element of an award ceremony that it's purely just about celebrating design and meeting fellow designers and creatives so you can kind of uh, catch up you know just purely from a social point of view maybe people you went to college with you only see once a year and so you know there's lots of reasons that people enjoy coming to Offset and uh, we're we're delighted that we've been able to keep going for so long. Can Offset come back? Are there plans to bring it back next year? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, our hope is that it'll come back. Of course, some of those, uh, uh, the ability to come back in the form that it has always been in will be probably decided by other people, you know. Um, At the moment, like we made it to, we got about two weeks out from Offset this year before mass gatherings of over, whatever a thousand people were were cancelled um so we were close to having it this year so it was extremely disappointing and uh, not to do it but of course uh, you know it was the right thing to do um whether when the next april comes whether people first of all whether we're we'll be in a position to have an event with two and a half thousand people sitting in a room is the first question second question if that is allowed is whether people will have uh, an appetite or uh, uh, you know whether they will feel from a health and safety point of view whether that's something they whether it's still a, a risk to go to an event like that you know for, for myself and Lisa the live experience is what Offset is about it is about the seeing the person in the flesh hearing them sitting beside them in the room you know coming to hear one speaker but maybe discovering someone you hadn't ever heard of before meeting friends meeting new people all of that you know it's that kind of uh, music festival kind of element to offset that is very important in terms of the experience whether we have whether we myself and lisa have an appetite to 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 move online if we can't have a live event uh, that's a question that uh, you know, we haven't really resolved yet, to be honest. Uh, you know, we obviously then there's logistical things. You know, when 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 it actually got postponed this year, you know, there's of course it's disappointing for everybody uh, who wanted to come. Um, and our speakers were extremely supportive the whole way through when we were watching everything develop. But you know, from from a business point of view, we are you know we're immediately then into the logistics of well you know, hotel deposits, flights, uh, sponsors, uh, we'd worked for, we'd worked for a year on the event and now two weeks out, it doesn't happen. Therefore we don't get income this year. 
from the event um, and whether we can sustain ourselves for another year without any income to get to the next event is is another big problem because you know Offset is run by myself and Lisa we're partners in business and in life and we've two kids and Offset is a big part of our lives of course uh, and a big part of our of our income so like a lot of people out there have been terribly affected by by the pandemic in terms of our business we've been very lucky on a personal point of view that we haven't been affected by it and from a health point of view or anyone in our family or friends so we're very grateful for that but the impact of it on our business has been huge um, and there's lots of course there's lots of question marks about whether we can get to the next event uh, at the level that we want to and whether people are going to uh, be in a position to be able to come it's, it's 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 an uncertain future for everybody yeah but it's certainly i think an aspiration for all of us to meet again at offset 2021 Brian, listen it's been an absolute joy talking to you today you're an inspiration and I hope to be able to not just see you, but shake your hand at Offset 2021. Appreciate Thank- that, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We're joined now by Mark Shanley, Creative Director with Wyden and Kennedy in London, late of DDFHB. So there's plenty of people listening who will have fond memories of Mark, I'm sure, and his partner, Paddy Tracy. Both were the creatives behind Nike's famous Nothing Beats a Londoner campaign, a highly successful campaign for Nike. Mark, you're very welcome, sir. Listen, how are things in London? Things must be a bit surreal, are they? Yeah, yeah, it's very surreal. I mean, I think we were um, in the office, we were quite prepared for working from home um, and we had been trialling it and stuff. But uh... And what, what are the realities of that for you, Mark, in terms of how do you how do you communicate with the office? How do you communicate with uh, with Paddy, your partner? We have a kind of a, a tricky situation in that I have um, I have a toddler and my wife is also working full time. So what we've had to do here at home is divide the day into. So I work the morning and she works the afternoon and then we both work the evening, catching up on all the meetings and Zoom calls and things we've missed. So. It means I'm kind of at half capacity during the day, which is enormously frustrating. Uh, but the team around me have been amazing. I mean, and, and Paddy's more than covered my ass on this. So I, I try and just start really early in the morning. And then at sort of half eight, Paddy and I will have a call together, go through everything that's going on, what the priorities are for the day. And then I'm available to everyone all morning and then sort of gone for the afternoon and I'll spend the evening catching up. Do you, do you come face to face with clients? How's that working out? In, in terms of clients, it, it's not been a huge sort of shift for us because most of our clients are um, are abroad anyway. I mean, when we deal with Nike, they're usually at um, their European headquarters in uh, Amsterdam or in Portland. So it, it, it's not really an issue. We're used to presenting work over over the phone and, you know, on a, a, a presentation and a Zoom or something like that. I certainly remember in, in DDs, we did everything face to face always. I don't remember ever presenting work over the phone. So uh, probably quite a shift for you guys there. But not a huge um not a huge change for us really let me ask you what do you miss about the office i I think the biggest thing for me personally has been that uh, ability to walk around the building and bump into people um, and sort of allow ideas to spread and get better that way i mean i've so many examples of times when we've been working on something and you know maybe it's over lunch or over a pint or a coffee or something and you'll just show someone what you're working on and they'll have had a, a similar problem before and they'll be able to help you make it better or just running into people at the coffee machine and, be, you know, have you worked with this director? Have you worked with this photographer? Or 
little things like that. It, it, it's a massive part of how work gets better in the office is just sharing it with the people around you and getting opinions from your peers. So it, it's a little hard because nobody, I think people don't naturally pick up the phone to, to, um, to people sort of outside their direct reports and who they're working with. Actually, we probably, most of us thought we couldn't work from home and now we're going, oh, you know what? Maybe I could do a couple of days from home. There are definitely massive pros to this. I mean, uh, and Paddy, you know, Paddy and I were talking about this recently. He's he's very fond of, you know, being able to have that space and have like a sort of a block of two or three hours to actually get some work done um, and not have meetings. Because I think once everyone got to grips with Zoom, your day immediately, or certainly for us, our day just filled up with Zoom meetings. So you just, you end one and you go into another one. Um, and you can get to at the end of a day and I've had loads of very useful meetings, but got no actual work done. So I think that like being able to be out of the office, but available to people, as long as you can be disciplined and protect your time, I think is, is really invaluable. Um, but like I say, that that's going to involve uh, a lot of discipline on everyone's part. I mean, it, we've trialed things in the agency in the past, like having uh, no meeting Tuesdays, I think it was, where no meetings were allowed. And it's really effective and people can get a lot yeah. of work done, but really in an ad agency at the end of the day, there are some things you just need to have meetings about. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me, Mark, have you seen anything that you would say is a good creative response to the current circumstances? Anything catch your eye at all recently? Yeah. I mean, there's been a couple of good responses. I think people started being creative with this quite quickly and, and thinking, you know, we still have to get work out. And the, the Facebook ad that everyone probably saw that came out of Drogue in New York was, I thought it was really, really beautifully realized, um, considering it, it was all found footage. And, you know, I know JWT folk managed to pull something together really quickly and they managed to license a Beatles track. And that was really cool. Um, you know, and it didn't look like all the sort of some of the, cheap and nasty stuff that other people were doing. Um, I watched TV last night and Paddy and I were texting each other and it was the first time either of us had watched terrestrial TV live for quite a while because usually we'll just watch things on Netflix or Amazon or whatever. And the standard of the, the commercials was just, it was so disappointing. It was really awful. I think people were just going, okay, fine. Turns out you can make a commercial from home and everything was, you know, portrait video in a landscape space. Um, ev everything looked the same. I mean, there were three or four ads in a row that looked the exact same. And it's it's bad enough all the big brands making those pieces with sort of, you know, empty stadiums where they just point out what's going on. Um, but if they're going to be back to back in a commercial break, how are they going to stand out? Mm -hmm. Everything looks the same. It's, um, it's just, it's not sustainable, is it? What do you think the future will be? You know, just speculate for a minute for us in terms of what you're hearing in London. You know, what's the legacy of this going to be, do you think? No, things are going to change, aren't they? It's, um, I mean, because we've got this distancing that we all have to adhere to is one thing. But, you know, we're, we're obviously also looking at probably a massive recession. Um, and so we all we all remember what happened last time there was a recession uh, in the industry and it's starting to happen already. So I, we're all just going to have to be really smart about how we make things and how we make our money, I think, is going to be the other one. Because it, I, I think we're just not going to be in a world where we can charge what we used to charge for our services. Um, so we're going to have to do what we did last time and find ways of sort of making more for less. I think in terms of production, it's it's actually an exciting challenge for a creative person. You know, it's like 
yeah, there's animation and there's found footage, but it, it doesn't need to stop there. Um, you know, there's there are amazing pieces of work, you know, created from archive footage. And then it's not like once you get archive footage, you just have to put it back to back in an edit. It's like, how can you chop that up? How can you take that to an animator and get them to bring it to life or bring still photography to life in film? It's um, it. I think if you come at it with the right attitude, it can be an exciting time for a creative person to sort of work within limitations because we can all just go, oh, no, I've written this big film and it needs to be this way, but it's just not going to fly. You have to think creatively to sort of solve these problems. In terms of the creative's role in all of this, do you think that maybe given the adversity that people will look to creatives in a way that maybe they haven't been for a long time for various business reasons, etc. But we need a creative response to what we are all calling the new realities and that this is a time when creatives maybe need to step up and come up with new ideas and, 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 and embrace new uh, ways of working. Do you think that that is a legacy that perhaps will come from this? I hope so. I mean, we're all learning these these new ways of working and some people are, are taking to it better than others. Um, but I think we're, we're all able to do it now. You know, it's been forced upon us and we can. And I think the people that are going to come out on top of this um, are the people who are able to work differently and think differently. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a good idea is just a good idea. And that's what's going to win here. Not coming up with a, a great script that needs to be shot in a stadium full of people or out on a busy street. It's a good idea that can be, you know, sort of channel agnostic and executed in any one of a dozen ways. People who are coming up with that, those are the people that are going to win. Mark, great talking to you. And listen, Thanks, stay Mark. safe and stay well. Cheers. I'm sure you've heard about the recent death of the iconic creative force that was Milton Glaser. He was famous for the I Heart New York logo and the 1966 Bob Dylan with psychedelic hair poster. With the graphic precision of a designer, he died on his 91st birthday on Friday, June 26th, 2020. Like Glazer, Max is a native New Yorker and he brings a very personal perspective to the life and work of Milton Glazer. Milton Glazer Graphic Design, his first big book came out when I was in high school and I bought it right away and it had a huge, huge effect on me. Even before you bought the book, how aware were you of the design at that stage in New York in terms of maybe his design or did you know anything about him before you bought the book or...? Yeah, absolutely. The art department in my high school had a subscription to Graphis, uh, which they pretty much got for me. I much later found out that the uh, head of the art department, Bert Iberius, was himself a modernist graphic designer, one younger, who didn't quite make the grade, took up teaching and eventually gave up graphic design. But uh, he was incredibly supportive. He thought maybe I could be a graphic designer as well. And like I said, he used discretionary funds to get a subscription to this very expensive magazine, which no one but me ever, ever read. So I knew who Milton Glaser was very well when I bought the book. And I was you know, already very much into the different styles of graphic design that were current at the time. Uh, in the middle 70s, uh, he, uh, Milton Glaser had been practicing for about 20 years. He founded Pushpin, uh, with uh, Reynold Ruffins and Ed Sorrell and Seymour Quast in 1954. So his career was in full flower yeah. 
yeah. by he was already a big deal design hero by the mid 70s the field of american graphic design at that point was sort of dominated by paul rand on one side yeah. and milton glazer on the other you know there were the strict severe corporate modernists and the eclectic hippie-ish referential illustrative uh Pushpinners. Free, more free thinking as well, weren't they? Like when do you start working professionally as a designer? Or? Well, yeah, I, I was freelancing from my mid-teens, but um, the, my first full-time design job was uh, 1980. And, and so at that stage, he, he's gone on to establish his own studio as well. Pushpin sort of ends around the end of the 70s, does it? Or? You know what? He left Pushpin, yeah. and I don't know exactly when. I mean, Pushpin Studios went on until... God, I think there may still be a Pushman Studios, which is basically yeah. whatever C. McQuast is doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, he parted amicably to go solo. Uh, and uh, that would have been, yeah, sometime around 1970, I'd say. Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's towards the end of the 70s. Um, okay. <laughs> maybe, uh, quite, I think it did my research. The, the, the Solvas versus Milton Glaser, the modernist versus, like, the thing that I really admire but probably struggle to do myself is is the the freehand aspect of it the you know the, the use of illustration the creation of you know your own drawings and your own ideas and, and it's interesting that you say like american graphic design at that time is there very much two sides to it oh at least and milton's one side and and yeah salt bass you know paul rand would be the other and, and, and he yeah. was very much the vanguard was he, he was the, the guy Milton Glaser on that side. I uh, he and Seymour, very much, you know, they were internationally among the first to start referencing Art Nouveau and uh, using ornamented Victor old uh, Victorian typefaces, you know, to do work that was heavily illustrative, that uh, was not minimal. Uh, was saturated with color. There are very few studios uh, that have had that kind of an impact. And uh, it was enormous in the States, but you know, uh, Heinz Edelman in Germany was clearly somebody who had looked very closely at what Pushpin was doing. Um, uh, Tatanori Oku in Japan has uh, talked about how important Pushpin was when he was beginning to uh, get his own thing going. So, uh, it was the difference between a very austere idea of a focused, reductive uh, approach to design and a very open, inclusive, referential approach to design. So what I'm interested in, not having had the benefit of being in New York in the 1980s or whatever, is that this is very much part of the everyday sort of visual culture of New York. New York impresses me in loads and loads of different ways. Um, but my first experience of New York is the Isle of New York and Manhattan skyscrapers. So my, my mom, mom had the, the famous Dylan poster on the wall, you know, like, so before I have ever, and I didn't go to New York until I was in my thirties, but before I ever experienced America or even knew anything about graphic design, I'd already seen those sort of things. Was that the visual culture of New York? Like, was he 
like was that the visual culture even that you kind of gravitated towards more than soul bass or was it just everywhere was I, I look at that work and feel it's an apt representation of what was going on there at the time there wasn't anything dominating visual culture in new york at that time because new york has always been a huge salad yeah. of influences and cultures and subcultures um so it's certainly i mean milton glaser was very important in the visual culture of new york but so were a lot of the uh, corporate modernists like the william golden at uh, cbs which at that time was the dominant broadcast network you had it all you had other you had other influences as well there was nothing monolithic about it as for the i love new york logo that would have come, that would come quite a bit later glazer never thought it was that big a deal it was a throwaway idea uh the story have you heard the story of it well you hear different stories of it but go on you can hear a story of it because i don't know if i believe it basically he uh was doing a work uh, some tourism work for the city of new york yeah and he had just sold the concept and everybody had signed off and everybody was happy and then in the cab back to the studio he had a better idea and he scrawled it onto a scrap of paper and then he called the client up and said ah uh, i feel funny doing this i never do this it's crazy to do this but i don't want to use what you just signed off on i want to do another presentation i just had a better idea but he didn't sell it to them for anything really did he? he kind of gave it to them that's the other i hadn't said that i don't believe this sort of thing of like i'm even lazy never made any money from the i love new york logo or uh, or, or the taxi cab story i, I don't want to uh, talk about the that logo for too long um but it does it certainly creates a legend uh, like a the, the story is is fantastic and the idea that you know this probably the most recognizable sort of it's not a logo what is it max uh, rebus i mean you know it's, <laughs> it's it's a brand mark it's uh, yeah like it's not just that you scribble and i remember paul share talking about this with the city bank logo with the umbrella and all like mm-hmm. it's not just that you're scribbling it down the back of the taxi i mean how many it's it's all the years that went before that and all the work you did before that you have the confidence to scribble it down people say it went when uh, somebody asked her you just scribbled that down in a meeting how long did it actually take you to design it and she answered 34 years yeah exactly yeah so and so that's the, the the like I've kind of two more questions that I wanted to get to so his philosophy his attitude not just so much as a designer i mean he described himself as a public intellectual as well i think on his own wikipedia page did you know that he described himself he as a public intellectual as a public intellectual i, I don't know i, I doubt he described himself as a public yeah, intellectual somebody described him as a public intellectual i would be shocked if he if he would ever make a claim like that uh he was uh the opposite of an egomaniac so that's the thing that fascinates me about him in general um, like the the philosophy and the attitude the design notwithstanding you know the artist's work above the front the front door of the studio Th- this idea that he, everybody sat in the studio with no hierarchy with no direct hierarchy and they all just sat in a room and they they did their drawings can you talk a bit about that like his philosophy his attitude and was that something that made a an impression on you or continues to make an impression on you because that to me it's i, I think he's the, the quite the opposite to how other designers might practice i just i just love the modesty of of the attitude but it it really permeated he was an amazingly 
modest and courtly man. One evening in the 90s, uh, the School of Visual Arts put on an evening with Paul Rand and Milton Glaser, uh, which of course I went to because I hugely admire both of them. It was supposed to be a dialogue on modernism between two design greats, and uh, it very rapidly became apparent that Paul Rand just thought it was an evening about Paul Rand, and that this... <laughs> you know, nice young fellow named Glazer had been brought along to interview him. So a few minutes in, you could see that Glazer had given up any idea of being able to say anything himself. And he spent the rest of the evening politely, deferentially, asking, Mil uh, asking Paul Rand uh, questions about his great accomplishments, uh, to which Paul Rand answered at great length. And at the end of the evening, he applauded Paul Rand with the rest of us. And I was just so impressed with the amount of class that takes of saying, oh, well, you know, I don't need to talk if this guy wants to talk so much. Let's just let him talk. Everyone I've ever known who has had anything to do with Milton Glaser talks about what a lovely, classy man he was. As a designer, as a... As somebody who lived in the New York suburbs as an American, like as an individual, maybe, you know, so what did he, what did he mean to you? At that time, I didn't really have a strong opinion of him as a human being. I'd never met him. But I remember reading every word of Milton Glaser graphic design with great attention. And uh, the way he taught, it was, it was basically anecdotes about the work and how it had come about and what he was trying to do, and frequently what he had failed to do, told very charmingly, very, you know, a, a sort of quiet wit. Uh, it was the opposite of a manifesto. And I suppose in the back of my mind was the idea that not only here is somebody pursuing a discipline at a very, very high level and making wonderful things that enrich my life, enrich other people's lives, and taking the work very seriously, but here's someone who doesn't take himself that seriously. And it just seemed like a really good way to be. I wasn't thinking about it, I was thinking about the work, and in particular about images that have stuck with me to this day. He's still an important designer to me. Back at my studio, he's on the bookcase. I can, I can take his book down without getting out of my chair. I don't do work that's remotely like his. I'm moving more toward the design of just pure letters. But still, people like that who do good work and do it in a way that makes you glad that they're around as people. So we'll wrap it up. Will, will, you, will you miss him? Well, I mean, I didn't know him. And the part of him that meant a lot to me, uh, which is to say the work and the attitude... Uh, they live on. So, I mean, he wasn't a buddy of mine. Uh, toward the end of his life, he was doing things I was less enthusiastic about, frankly. But just as an example of a way to live a life and do work um, and of the possibilities of work, he's still around and he's still important to me. And so, uh, yeah, so I won't be missing him. He's okay. still here. Thanks, Max. Thank you. And that's it from Recreating for Today. Thanks for joining us, and a special thank you goes out to Bren Byrne, Max Phillips, and Mark Shandley. Until next time, take care and stay safe.